ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the debut grand opening of Mad Villain Bistro Bed and Breakfast Bar Grill Cafe Lounge on the Water. Where we offer you the finest to the finest. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Terry Talks Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Ryan Terry. And I'm Clayton Terry. And today we are talking about our 10 favorite movies of 2019. Yes, so we should start by saying we are unfortunately not joined by Ethan today. Ethan felt like he hadn't seen enough of the movies of this year to have a solid top 10 list. Um, but from conversations with him, I can confidently say his favorite part about 2019 was Baby Yoda. Baby Yoda was, it made a big impact. He really liked how Disney had to quickly make a bunch of shirts that were like horribly <laughs> JPEGed and cropped. Yeah, he talked he talked about it a lot. So yeah. Specifically uh, the shirts. He yeah, didn't care about the character. Not the character at all. He, he doesn't know what the Mandalorian is. Yeah, well, he doesn't know what Star Wars is. We've tried explaining it to him, but he keeps <laughs> complaining it with Star Trek and he doesn't know what that is either. <laughs> So the conversation will be less fun, but hopefully we still touch on a breadth of movies with just us two. Mm-hmm. Ryan, I wanted to start with, how did you feel about 2019 overall? Um, I thought generally it was good, like above average for a year movies. Wow, okay. But actually, I didn't think there was one thing that stood out to me aside from our number one movie. Yeah. That was like, that was amazing. Mm -hmm. I think it was a lot of movies that I thoroughly enjoyed, but not a lot that stuck with me to the same extent that 2017 did. Yeah. Um, Even some movies from 2018, definitely, like Roma or um, what was my second? I don't remember. Oh, Suspiria. Suspiria. Yeah. Yeah. Like those movies really stuck with me. Mm -hmm. And I, I really loved a lot of movies this year, but to the extent where they become like perfect movies... That was a hard threshold. And I and I did miss a few movies True, yeah. that I'm sure I would have loved. Mm-hmm. But I feel similarly. It was a lot of like, if you were to go by letterbox rankings, like four out of five movies for me. Mm-hmm. A lot of movies that I really enjoyed um, that I may have seen a couple times in theaters, but aren't necessarily going to go down as my favorite movies of all time. Whereas you look at 2018, which had like Hereditary and Infinity War and Mission Impossible Fallout. Oh, which, I forgot about Hereditary, too. Yeah, and 2017, which was amazing to the point where, mm-hmm. like, Call Me By Your Name was, like, in, I don't even know if that was in my top five, but I yeah. love that movie. Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. Uh, Lady Bird. Last Jedi. Last Jedi. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think I was a little disappointed by this year, um, but I didn't, like... In October, I was thinking I could probably get away with the top five list, and I don't feel that way anymore. So That's I'm, good. I'm happy with that at least. I caught a bunch of movies at the tail end of the year because in Fredonia we don't have a very good movie theater. Yeah. So, but like Jojo Rabbit. Um, well, don't, don't don't give our list away. We can talk about that as we start. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Jojo Rabbit may or may not appear somewhere in one of our top ten. I was giving an example of movies I had to watch late. Oh yeah. Okay. So that one. Uh, Return of the Jedi. <laughs> it is not okay. Um, maybe we could talk about some other disappointments this year at the end as well. But since you already mm. spoiled it, I'm I think sorry. we should just jump into our top tens. <laughs> well, we're gonna talk about Tiff. Oh, we did want to talk about Tiff. We went, we went to Tiff. Yeah. So for people unfamiliar, Tiff is Toronto International Film Festival. This was the first time that any of us have been. We also went with our friends, Ted and Brennan, shout out. And 
it was a lot of fun, but we I feel like we did Tiff wrong. <laughs> we definitely did Tiff wrong. I would like to go again and do it right. Mm-hmm. We saw two movies at the festival and it was Synchronic and Blackbird <laughs> with Susan Sarandon and other people. <laughs> uh yeah, which are two movies none of you will probably ever see because I thought one was I thought they both were decent, but I don't know mm-hmm. if they're getting picked up by anyone. I can see Blackbird getting picked up. I cannot see Synchronic getting picked up. Synchronic might go like straight to Netflix or something. I wasn't crazy about Synchronic. But yeah. I thought Blackbird was okay. Mm-hmm. But how'd you feel about the experience of TIFF overall? I thought it was fun. It was different than what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. And I, I would really like to go again with knowing what I know now. Mm-hmm. Because um, the only festivals I'd have gone to at that point are music festivals. Okay. And those are completely different vibes. <laughs> Absolutely. But um, I wasn't expecting it to be kind of spread around the whole city. Mm-hmm. That kind of surprised me. I wasn't expecting how many movies were actually going to be there. Yeah. That was a wake-up call and how many of them will will no one else will ever see yeah in retrospect like i'm trying to count right now i think at least six of my movies were at tiff in my top yeah. 10 might be crazy. even well i don't know if it's more for me there's a few on my list that didn't make it on yours that also yeah. premiered at tiff mm-hmm. but it was just a crazy experience and we also saw tyler the creator there yes we did yeah that we, was awesome yeah, saw him in concert that was amazing that was one of the, my favorite weekends of the year for sure. But I love, I love the atmosphere of TIFF. Like, you're sitting down with an audience, and this isn't a cheap event. So like everyone there wants to be there, loves to be there, loves have, movies. Mm-hmm, you have critics in the room. You have just movie lovers. You have the cast and crew in the mm-hmm. room. Anthony Mackie kind of was in the room. <laughs> yeah, for us second. Yeah. Um. To. Pr- provide the anecdote he uh was there in the beginning but then he left before the q a so i think he had another movie that he had to go to because he had two at tiff so what was the other one i don't remember but I know it, there was... do you think it was an end game thing or i don't think so okay maybe but yeah so it was just energetic and the room felt alive and then you would go and you'd look at the Hollywood Reporter's review of Synchronic and they would reference things that happened in the showing we were at. Mm-hmm. So it just felt like we were a part of the whole community in a way I've never felt before. Yeah, it was it was a very like selective experience and in a way that I had never seen before, especially for movies. Like it, we were walking by red carpet premieres. Like that yeah. was weird. We were. That was very weird. Yeah, we walked out of Synchronic, and if we had stuck around a little bit, we would have seen the cast and crew of The Lighthouse coming in and out. Oh, really? Yeah, because oh, that was that. premiering that theater. Yeah, the There was next. like a four-hour wait for The Lighthouse. It was um, rushing. There was a four-hour rush. Yeah, line. yeah. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, we touched on TIFF. Now is it time to dive into our top ten? I believe so, yes. Okay, well, Ryan, why don't we start with you? What is your number ten movie? of 2019 um my number 10 movie was uncut gems from the safety brothers who i thoroughly enjoy i love good time that was a movie i caught after the year was over and um it was just like a fever dream of a movie it blew me away their directing and cinematography i find really outstanding and their soundtracks stuff or their score rather is some of the best of the last decade in Mm -hmm. my opinion this is good time you're talking about right now right yeah, and I also thought Uncut Gems' score was really good. Mm-hmm. The movie is about a uh, New York City jeweler who makes a series of high-stakes bets that could lead to a windfall of a lifetime. I'm reading the IMDb description. <laughs> this would not be my own words. But um, 
the reason I'm reading the description is it's it's a ride and it's somewhat confusing at first, but it's um it's a very ener- energetic experience and very driven. And that's what I really appreciate appreciate about it. The cinematography is very close up, um, almost manic in the way it's shot. It's uh, you can't predict where it's going, really. Adam Sandler does a really good job, and I do not say that often. I say that about <laughs> one movie, yeah. and it was uh, like 10 years, 20 years ago. So it was just, it, I guess it, I wasn't surprised. It, it is a Safdie Brothers movie. It feels like one. Maybe a little toned down from Good Time, mm. but um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, we saw this movie together. It is not in my top 10, but I I like parts of it. I struggle. I do think it was a very anxiety-driven uh, mm-hmm. movie, which I think a lot of people have been saying, and that's kind of the appeal. I personally uh, struggle in movies when there isn't a character I can latch on to, and purposefully everyone in this movie is pretty unlikable. Yeah. Um, but I do think I need to maybe rewatch it and I definitely want to see Good Time because that's one you guys have seen that I haven't. That a Good Time is very good. Mm-hmm. And I, I do like it more than Uncut Gems. Mm-hmm. But there was this... I, I'm okay with not liking characters in a movie. Mm-hmm. I can just kind of be there for the ride and like see what happens to these people regardless of my opinion towards them. And Adam Sandler is not a likable character in this movie. He does a lot of things that makes me as an audience member... Think like, why are you doing that? Yeah, that's a dumb decision. Mm-hmm. But I think that's what makes the experience so, um, a little more riveting than it would be otherwise. Because it's like, because you don't have an attachment to this character, anything could happen. Yeah, like there is no safety net under any character, and uh, good time feels like that to a certain extent. Although I'd argue Robert Pattinson's character is a l- more likable. Yeah, I just really enjoyed this movie and the ride that it took me on awesome so that's uncut gems at your number 10 my number 10 is a little film by a little guy (laughs) called martin scorsese and that's the irishman i've never heard of what else has he done (laughs) um this is a film that follows a mob hitman who has possibly been involved with the mystery around the character of jimmy hoffa i'm not going to directly read the imdb plot summary because it kind of spoils it if you're not familiar with the history of jimmy hoffa why i like this movie personally is i struggle with martin scorsese in the sense that i think sometimes he's glorifying the mobster life so i think goodfellas of the movies i've seen is probably the one that is the most guilty of that i think people probably get the wrong message out of taxi driver even if martin scorsese didn't want people to get that message I think The Departed does a good job of showing how difficult this lifestyle is, but that comes out of Leonardo DiCaprio's performance and not necessarily in the writing. So I always felt like it was kind of glorifying this violence and that, yes, we're going to show the consequences, but the consequences are never as dire as the violence is grand and satisfying. But The Irishman, the first two-thirds of the movie, which is about two hours and 45 minutes, um it's like goodfellas it follows these characters um doing mob things hitting people meeting new people hitting those new people they meet and all that kind of stuff the typical martin scorsese gangster stuff but the last third of the movie which is 
the movie's about three hours and 30 minutes. So the last third's like the last hour, I guess. Um, Martin Scorsese kind of brings in what he's been reckoning with these last couple years of like religious overtones and using religion to kind of reflect back on his previous movies on the idea of if he glorified violence on the idea of if these are gangst if these gangster men are people we should look up to and it kind of remedied my problems with goodfellas and all that because it made it so the it made it so the artist seems aware of how they've impacted the culture and all the good and bad that have come of that all the performances in this movie are pretty stellar namely joe pesci who came out of retirement for this movie um he has a very subdued role compared to usual but i thoroughly enjoyed him and yeah i highly recommend this movie especially if you're a martin scorsese fan especially if you have some of the complaints that i just laid out because this reflects on those in a really interesting way i've not yet seen the irishman but something i really appreciate about Martin Scorsese and his work is how versatile he is. Because mm-hmm. often I forget that he also made movies like Hugo and this uh, and Silence. And I also, he's one of the rare directors that have had an impact on every single decade of film. Yeah. Well, you, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Goodfellas, The Departed, Wolf on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. These like his entire career spans from like the rat pack era of films yeah. to now mm-hmm. and it's um it's so incredible to track that career mm-hmm. in ways that like even some of the other great directors from that era kubrick uh spielberg um they don't have the same they certainly have a progression but they don't have the same like overall trends in their work that scorsese has maybe spielberg does yeah i would but... say spielberg but even Spielberg doesn't tackle the same topics he did then as he does now. No. And you can see how Scorsese tap, tackles those topics differently. Mm-hmm. Like Wolf on Wall Street is like, what if a mob boss got really into stock, the stock market? Yeah. That's kind of what, which I feel like is way more reflective of the time that we're living in right now mm-hmm. than back then when Goodfellas was made. So Definitely. I think, and you can only do that reflection if you have this long filmography that he has, you know? Yeah. So... Like, he has this trilogy of films that started in 19, you know, the Goodfellas Casino of Wall Street that started in 91, mm-hmm. which is insane to think about. Cool. So I think we're going to hop to our number nines. My number nine appears later in your list. So we're only going to talk about each of these movies once. So we're going to start when the person who has it highest has their rating. Um, so we're going to jump to Ryan's number nine, which is Joker. I think Joker was a very good movie. I think sometimes it's hard to talk about without the baggage Yeah. of like, you know, what effect does it have on society, mm-hmm. which people, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of if you report it's going to have a bad effect on society, it's going to have a bad effect. Yeah. Or like just the memification of it to death. But I just think it's a very well-made movie. And I think it's a movie reflective of the time that we're living in. And I think that that is a really important thing to have in what is essentially a superhero movie right Mm -hmm. now it is somewhat of a deconstruction of the genre Mm -hmm. and you know todd phillips did a very good job sometimes he can come off in interviews like a dick yeah but he did do a very good job and i'm glad that there are films like this being made i hope hollywood doesn't take the wrong reaction to this where it's like oh now we need to make an r movie of kite man or quilt man or whoever it was (laughs) yeah but 
I want I'm I want these more thoughtful artsy films to come out of uh, comic books, and I think Batman's a great example of that. Logan was a good example, although wildly different film. Yeah, a few years prior, the best superhero trilogy ever made. Most people don't consider a superhero trilogy. Yeah, the Nolan films. So, I'm glad I'm glad that they're allowing creative artists to take these very marketable ideas and say, what if we flip them? And I I don't know if I want a sequel. I don't really. Yeah. I kind I don't really need to see movies within the same vein. I don't need to see a Bane movie or something in the same vein. But I really, it was just a good movie that didn't hinge too much on the source material. Definitely. Um, I agree with a lot of that sentiment. This is just barely not in my top ten, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, setting aside everything Tom Phillips has said. I remember seeing this movie and there are scenes that are pretty violent and intense and indicative of a men's mental struggle. And I think about how the fact that my audience was kind of laughing during these moments and it made me kind of think this isn't, this isn't a perfect movie, but maybe our culture is too messed up right now for this movie. You know what I mean? Like, if incels weren't such a horrible like internet troll base and they weren't so damaging to society could this movie exist in like a utopia and it just be maybe not the deepest critique of society or maybe not the deepest dive into depression and mental health but there are a lot of valuable moments in it like i think about when he gets home from uh, something and he just removes everything from his refrigerator and he just crawls inside and shuts it. Mm-hmm. And I heard some podcaster or letterbox reviewer write that like, that is the most accurate depiction of depression I've seen on a, on the film. Yeah. On a film screen of just like wanting to shut yourself out from society in some way that feels safe. And I think the movie had a lot of moments like that. Again, just barely not in my top 10, but I definitely enjoyed it more than it seems like the culture did (laughs) yeah it seems like it's a shame that that baggage is put on the film and not the people that the film's intended for yeah or the people the film is based around yeah the joker should not be viewed as a character that anyone would look up to yeah or see as good in any way but this movie makes it somewhat empathetic not in a way that makes me think that the Joker is a good or redeemable character, but in a way that humanizes him. Yeah. That's why it reminds it reminds me a lot of The Killing Joke, not explicitly because of the content in it, mm-hmm. but because The Killing Joke seeks to humanize the Joker. And how do you humanize something that is so outwardly evil? Mm-hmm. And also, I think it does have important things to say about society as a whole, if surface value. Yeah. You know, it's a film, the things it's saying aren't said in most movies. Mm -hmm. And I do appreciate that about it. Um, Sometimes it comes off as silly or overdramatic. Um, But in some ways, that just adds to the charm. Mm -hmm. If you're watching it in a vacuum outside of the incel bubble. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think that people have argued that it's derivative of like early Martin Scorsese movies. But you can make an argument that current Martin Scorsese is derivative of old Martin Scorsese. (laughs) Um, As discussed on this podcast, I like The Irishman a lot. But 
it is Martin Scorsese doing Martin Scorsese. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I think we shouldn't cherry pick when movies we don't like and call them like ripping off movies we do like. But then when talented filmmakers may be reproducing some of their motifs or whatnot, we, uh, we kind of are just recognize that culture is always pulling from other things. Mm -hmm. And I think that a taxi driver style movie is perfect for an era we we live in right now even if the audience isn't ready for it yeah it's it like taxi taxi driver says a lot about the time period that it comes from mm -hmm. and i think the joker could potentially say a lot about the time period it was made in today mm -hmm. and um you know just outside of the response what responsibility does art have argument i do believe that this is a quality movie and it does have something valuable to say. And to pretend it doesn't is to devalue filmmaking, these types of films as a whole, the Raging Bulls, the Taxi Drivers. I also really love the aesthetic and the cinematography where it felt like a really dirty and gross version of an old Hollywood film. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like it just certainly it plays into that with like the end, the end title card. And like so that seems a little silly, a, a butt fitting. Mm -hmm. And it's just the way it presents itself is very confident. Mm -hmm. It's confident that this is a, this is worth your time. This is a good movie. And that's why it kind of fascinates me. I think if it wasn't for that confidence, maybe there wouldn't be so much discussion around it. True. Yeah. If it was more wishy-washy. Yeah. Or subdued. Yeah. Awesome. So with that, we're going to move on to my number eight, which is Robert Eggers, The Lighthouse. Now, I don't even know how to talk about this movie. <laughs> it is unlike any genre. I guess you could classify it as horror, maybe drama. But it's mainly just a character study into Robert Pattinson's character and Willem Dafoe's character. Uh, Robert Eggers has said, I'm paraphrasing here, that this movie is about what happens when two characters are trapped in a giant phallus. And if the witch which is Edgar's previous film is kind of about the dangers femininity pose to that, that society. This is kind of about the dangers of masculinity. And you have this movie where these two characters are trying to be as masculine as possible, as macho as possible and kind of rejecting anything of themselves that isn't hyper-masculine and you see the repercussions of that. You see the slippery slope they go down towards madness. And what's interesting is this film is very open-ended. So this is just one interpretation that I walked away with. But some of the objective things about this movie, it's one of the most interesting. I feel like that you could see this decade. It's in 4-3 aspect ratio, I believe, in black and white. The sound design is amazing. Uh, it has a lot of the ocean sounds and sounds of the lighthouse and kind of that mechanical nature dichotomy. Um, and it really captures isolation in a way that I found really exciting. Um, again, this is a difficult movie to talk about, I find, but definitely one that I would seek out if I were you and have not seen it yet. From what I remember of this year, by summer, 
this was the movie I was most anticipating. Yeah. I have not seen it yet. I really want to. I genuinely believe that this will be in my top 10 Mm -hmm. if I do see it. What I've seen of it, it feels similar to the films that I and my peers are creating at Fredonia in our degree. Just the way it looks, the way it's shot, the sound design. Um, And not in a way that's to say it seems amateurish because it doesn't, but it seems very artsy yeah and like very um open-ended which is what i was most excited to see about it Mm -hmm. and i think i still this will be the second it comes out on rent the only reason i didn't is because i didn't want to pay 13 dollars for it on amazon Mm -hmm. and then own the movie forever i guess that's not a bad thing (laughs) on on an amazon account though. on amazon account that's true but um I can't wait till this comes out on rent. I will see it the second it comes out. Mm-hmm. And I would not be shocked if this ends up on my top 10. Yeah, definitely. It's I highly recommend it. Uh, there was an anecdote from Tiff of one person who went to the film festival and he just saw Lighthouse four times. That was all he did. He, I guess, had tickets for one of them and then he rushed it three other times. That's awesome. That's incredible. So that's kind of a testament to the uniqueness of this movie, the uh, watchability of it, the seems like one of the films that you probably have to watch multiple times to like truly hammer in on a thesis but i even after one viewing i really enjoyed it and that's my number eight we almost rushed it but we decided the line was too long it was pretty long it was like four hours or something right yeah it would have been most of our evening so ryan do we want to talk about your number eight which is also a pretty unsettling movie from a 24 horror director yes i would like to talk about my number eight (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i had to check the notes yeah you forgot for a sec yes uh midsummer ari aster he is one of the most mem- mesmerizing creepiest directors working today he only has two films he has a bunch of short films that are also equally unsettling but um only two films hereditary one of the best films of the decade absolutely it is almost I try to say as little about it as possible. It's one of those movies. Oh, yeah. Because the less you know about... I guess I could say that about Midsummer too. The less you know about his movies, the more you enjoy them. Mm-hmm. But he Midsummer is a different film for him where the entire movie takes place like in day, in broad daylight. And it's not as scary. I wouldn't say it's a scary movie necessarily. To me, it wasn't scary. It was very creepy and unsettling. And it was very gory to an extent, too. Mm-hmm. Like the things that I don't want to spoil anything. The things that this movie shows you as an audience member are bizarre and they make you like question who is in the right. The characters that are supposed to be the American perspective, only one of them is really likable and it's Danny. Mm-hmm. And the rest come off as like they want to use these people, to, they want to take advantage of them for their well what they believe is like these outlandish and weird rituals can you give us like just a brief non-spoiler uh, plot description um so the plot of midsummer is basically this woman danny the main character uh her family dies and she's t- horribly distraught about it mm-hmm. and her her boyfriend does very little to help her yeah and they're planning the study abroad trip to go and write their thesis on this village in uh, Eastern Europe. I'm not entirely sure of the country. 
like northern europe maybe yeah. yeah northern europe and basically live with this colony for uh a week or so mm-hmm. and she gets invited because they're worried about or the person from the colony their friend from the colony is worried about her mentally and he convinces the boyfriend to let her go and um it's during this ritual that they have and it's a very bizarre weird fever dream of a movie mm-hmm. very drug um yeah it feels like a drug trip mm-hmm. and the, that is definitely on purpose you can see that planted in the movie the characters take lsd often mm-hmm. um it's kind of a part of this colony it's kind of like a ritual thing mm-hmm. but yeah just kind of the set pieces and what's happens to these people it escalates more and more and you don't and danny kind of feels like she has this home in this colony that she's never felt before mm-hmm. but it, it it's very unsettling mm-hmm. and it makes you question like the foreigner's view of what it's like to be in this civil in this civilization in this world that you've never experienced before mm-hmm. definitely i think i'm trying again this is a movie you don't want to spoil but it's almost like it's a folk horror movie to some of the characters, oh, that's a but great, it's also like a coming into your own for some of the characters. So it's that dichotomy is really interesting. Um, this is also not in my top 10, but I love Ari Aster so much. He wrote this movie before Hereditary, and in my opinion, you can tell it's not as tight as Hereditary is. Some of the themes and foreshadowings kind of beat over the audience's head, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. But... I do really love this movie. I love the look of this movie. And I'm so grateful for everything Ari Aster is doing, has done, will continue to do. I am. We had this conversation coming out of, I don't remember what movie it was. It might have been Midsummer. I do have a concern with um, directors, especially horror directors who make a great first film. Yeah. And then are given very limited time to work on their second film. Like I think that happened to Jordan Peele with us. Yeah um where get out is a fantastic movie and us is a good movie and has a lot of ideas but i don't think he had enough time to flesh out one idea yeah and i think the same could be said for something like midsummer i think it has a lot of great ideas um to a lesser extent than us um i don't think it really hones in on one but i really appreciate what the film is going for and the aesthetic and it looks beautiful. Yeah. It is a really strange movie in terms of like the way it's shot. And some of my, one of my favorite shots of the whole year is when the sign flips. When you see when they're driving and they have oh, this like welcome yeah. sign and it flips. Mm-hmm. It's just bizarre. And it adds so much to the aesthetic that he's going for. These like kind of long droning shots where you don't exactly know what's going on. And you can only make out a few things. and But it's all brightly lit. And like, there's nothing imposing about it, mm-hmm. but there's just something that's off. Yeah, that you can't exactly ex- explain. Mm-hmm. And that little unexplainable something is where all of the dread in this movie comes from, and it sustains that for the whole runtime, much oh, like Hereditary. Absolutely. Yep, Hereditary is maybe a little more hostile. Oh, absolutely. Oh, <laughs> not a little. It's from more. It's definitely a lot more hostile. Yeah, yeah. But both great movies, and those were our number eights. So we're now going to move into number seven. So this is your number seven, and it was my number nine, and it's The Farewell. The Farewell is about a Chinese family discovering that the matriarch 
uh, the main character, Aquafina, plays, uh, her grandmother, has cancer and only a short while to live. The family decides not to tell the grandmother about this cancer and to instead plan a fake wedding that they all will go to to kind of see the grandmother character, Nai Nai, one last time before she uh, passes away. This is based on a true story. This was originally a This American Life story. Yeah, well, before I go into my opinion, Ryan, you had a hire, so why don't we hear about what you thought of The Farewell? I didn't know it was a This American Life story. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, well, she couldn't get it made as a movie, so they did a radio show first and then got the movie. <laughs> oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, I love this movie. Yeah. I thought it was... The whole theme of the movie seems to be East versus West mentality. Definitely, yeah. You know, how um, death is viewed differently, how our relationship to people is viewed differently. And I thought all the performances were excellent. I thought the movie had a heart to it. It was very sad, but it, it, it had a levity to that sadness where, like, there is a bit of comedy in the fact that she doesn't know. Yeah. <laughs> and there is a bit of comedy between this East versus West part of the family. Um, a lot of the movies in Chinese. It was... Uh, and so that kind of drives home. When the characters are speaking English, it's like, oh, there is a there is a divide here. Yeah. I loved watching these characters navigate the situation. And you can tell it's unfair to certain characters. Some of them don't handle it very well. Um I felt the whole movie, I felt super bad for the couple getting married. Yeah. Because <laughs> they clearly did not want to be getting married yeah. at that point. And it was, I don't know, it just, it touched me. Mm-hmm. It, it was just a very honest depiction of what life for these people is like, knowing that a person they love is going to die and they can't tell that person. And it, it, I, it's a mentality I can never relate to. I think you'll get different things from this movie depending on where you're from mm-hmm. and what your cultural background is. Like someone from China would probably have a different perspective on this movie Definitely. than me. And that's I've, very fascinating. It's something I don't see in a lot of movies, this cross-pollination kind of. Mm-hmm. this. Uh, I don't know. I just loved it for that. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of plot to this movie, to be honest, but I am going to spoil a kind of minor plot detail towards the end. So if you want to skip ahead a minute, this is your warning. The moment where Aquafina's character drives away and is kind of waving, waving to Nai Nai in the back of a car, I feel like I spent the whole movie like trying not to cry. And then, much like Aquafina now had permission to like feel the emotion she was feeling this whole time, like, I also felt like I had permission to, like, let down the artifice and stop, like, pretending around Nai Nai. And that moment just kind of broke me. And I I think about, I think it's one of my favorite moments, one of the most emotional moments from this year in movies for me. And that levity that you were talking about makes the film rewatchable in a way a lot of, like, very sad movies aren't. I think that only benefits the film. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. There is this um feeling of catharsis at the end where you finally can let your emotions flow you don't have to and especially in china the chinese characters are very emotionally guarded yeah they don't let their emotion they don't wear their emotions on their sleeve they don't let people know what they're feeling and then the american family is more likely to let them people know 
the people they love know about their emotions. And I think that's also a great way of showing that divide, mm-hmm. that this character cannot handle this. This is not their culture. This is not how they feel. Yeah. And they are not going to pretend that that's how they feel. Mm-hmm. And that's something I very much appreciated in this movie. Uh, because this is based on a true story, just a little update. As far as I'm concerned, I haven't read up since the movie came out, but uh, Nai Nai is still was still alive at the is still alive at the time of the release of this movie. Um, so she lived past her the time they gave her. Yeah, by like four years. <laughs> yeah, and they were making this movie, and they made it where Nai Nai lives. So they had to kind of hide the plot of this movie from her because they still don't want to tell her. But then they were like, well, she's going to want to see the movie. She we, she knows we're making it. And they are like, oh, she'll pass away before then. She did not pass away before the premiere. So I don't know if she knows now or if they somehow got her out of the premiere or like made up some story. But it's really interesting that... Wait, so they never told her that she almost died? I don't know. They hadn't told her as of like the release of this movie. Does she still have cancer? Yeah. So according to a July 2019 interview, um, they're... They continue to lie about her health and the plot of this movie. Uh, Lulu Wong, who directed the movie and wrote it, kind of writes that it's she told Nai Nai that it's just like an immigration story um, and a reunion for a wedding. But that's a lie, but like a lie for a mission. Um, yeah, and she writes that they thought that lying about the movie's plot wouldn't pose a, pr- a problem because the grandmother would likely die before it came out, which did not happen. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so um, as far as I know, Nai Nai is still alive. So I don't know what they've done since this interview, but um, that's, that's a level of commitment that yeah. I could not, I assumed if they lived, they just told them. Yeah. Like I didn't think that they would just keep the lie going. Yeah. God. But it seems like the, the hoax, the hoax is still going on. So it's kind yeah. of, unless you watch the movie. Yeah, unless she saw it uh, yeah. for the premiere, but that's oh. crazy. Yeah, but awesome, great movie. That's Ryan's number seven, my number nine. So now your number, my number seven is your number six. So we're just gonna talk about this movie next, um, and that's Jojo Rabbit. So Jojo Rabbit is directed by Taika Waititi, who did Thor Ragnarok, as well as What We Do in the Shadows and Hunt for the Wilder People, and a lot of other great movies this decade or just in general, Um, and Jojo Rabbit follows a young boy in Hitler's army who finds out that his mother is hiding a Jewish girl in their home. Uh, Jojo is the main character, and he is all about Nazis at this point in his life. He has Hitler as an imaginary friend, played by director Taika Waititi, and his mother is played by Scarlett Johansson, who will come up again in this list, twice actually, and this film, in my opinion, hinges on the relationship between Jojo and his mother, Scarlett Johansson. The Scarlett Johansson performance in this movie is probably my favorite performance of the year. If it's not her, it's probably a movie she's also in. So that's just a testament to the great year she's had. But this movie just has so much empathy and it may not, I, I get frustrated because I feel like in this time, everyone wants every movie to say something like harsh against Nazis, I guess. But I don't know if we would have felt that five years ago. And I wonder if, again, in a utopia, is this movie better received? Because 
it's almost like our culture isn't ready for the empathy this movie seeks to show its characters and whatnot but i really like jojo rabbit ryan you put it higher what did you think of the film i did put it higher i the, it was less funny than i was expecting not to say it isn't very funny it is very funny mm-hmm. but it's less of a comedy than i was expecting and much more heartfelt uh much more loving i think there is something to be said about a movie that says come here we can we can empathize with you yeah we know what's we know why you feel this way mm-hmm. and i think that's what i really love about it of course there will be a discussion around a movie that makes adolf hitler a funny likable character yeah but it does it in a way that's this is a kid's imagination this is his life this is all he knows and how do you tell someone that their entire life is a bed of lies <laughs> you know how do you yeah. how do you tell someone that the thing that they believe in is bad and it's bad for them and it's bad for everyone around them and you know scarlett johansson's character doesn't know none of the other characters know how to deal with this yeah none of them seem particularly gung-ho about nazis except for the kids yeah you know even the nazis officers that are in the movie don't seem to be that loyal they just seem to be doing it for a paycheck mm-hmm. or because they are already stuck in this situation and they don't know how to get out and i think that's a, i think it says a lot about the feeling of being alone and wanting to fit in and even if it's to such an extent that you become a nazi but that's like 70 percent of 4chan so you know <laughs> i think there is especially in the age where white supremacy is so obvious and where hatred is so um allowed to an extent and and also hidden mm-hmm. like you can go to places where you can just spout these awful views and people will be on your side of course yeah because it's an echo chamber and to address that and to address that in 1945 nazi germany with a kid whose imaginary friend is adolf hitler is funny it's heartfelt and it's uh it's unpredictable yeah it's it was just it was just shocking to see a movie with this much empathy mm-hmm. yeah i i really love this movie i i think of the quote the mother character has where it's like you're not a nazi you just are 11 year old boy who likes playing dress up and wants to fit in and i feel like that sentiment is being said to a lot of people is important i think it is a very important movie for this time Mm -hmm. i think it doesn't treat itself like it is and i think that that's a good thing yeah i think that it it hides behind its nazism and its fantasy world but at its core it has something really important to say Mm -hmm. about why people turn to the fringes and the extremes and what effect that has on society and in the end you know it's still to an extent based in real life so they lose yeah but it doesn't really feel that much like a win and i just i really appreciated it in that regard Mm -hmm. i also think there's something to be said of when like these evil characters in history are depicted as buffoons as Mm -hmm. opposed to as like conniving geniuses because it kind of disarms them um i agree i think the best depictions of adolf hitler (laughs) in fiction the dictator 
and then glorious bastards he's, yeah. a, he's a joke yeah. you know he's just like a a yelling baby mm-hmm. and the other best world war ii movies i can think of he's not in it he's not in saving private ryan so i think the more interesting conversation is the war itself and the effect it has on the soldiers mm-hmm. and not the leadership yeah and if it is about the leadership you need to portray it in a way that i don't like the idea of like the posturing of the allies but it's certainly funny to knock hitler down a peg yeah i don't think anyone's gonna i mean some people will get mad about it but they probably shouldn't be watching movies (laughs) they shouldn't be participating in discourse yeah exactly (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i totally agree and also the two main characters are so much fun to watch oh i love it yeah. one kid that's like it's definitely not a good time to be a nazi <laughs> i love that character i wish he was in the movie more he was so funny and he, charming he was great he was he was a weird foil to the main character he's only in like four or five scenes he, he like but, shows up and delivers plot and like walks away yeah he doesn't he steal like a dead person's clothes to fit in with the with the I, other team when i think so yeah. oh my god it's great he's much more uh pragmatic than our main character mm-hmm cool shall we move on to your number five we're into the top five ryan kind of some of some of these movies that we're going to talk about are higher up in for me but your number five my number five was toy story four which i was not expecting mm-hmm. i wanted to dislike this movie i really did before <laughs> it came out i was like there shouldn't be another toy story movie pixar's ran out of ideas i don't like this i don't want anything to do with this i ended the movie tearing up mm-hmm. i was about to cry it's not you there's no getting back into the swing of the toy story franchise it's just here's what this character is going through right now here's what the plot here's how the plot of the movie is going to unfold it doesn't wait and i really appreciate that aspect about it toy story 3 was the end of andy's character and toy story 4 feels like the end of woody's character Mm -hmm. and so the plot of this movie is Woody's at the new house of his new owner. I don't know her name. It's weird to say that, but yeah, he uh, and she falls in love with this spork she makes at school. <laughs> that's uh, like two dry cleaners and or what are they called the uh, pipe cleaners? Uh, pipe cleaners and and like popsicle sticks. Yeah, and it's this stupid forky character that again I was prepared to hate before the movie came out, mm-hmm. and. The character wants to die. The character <laughs> thinks it's trash and wants to be trash. Yeah. And Woody has to protect this character throughout the movie as more and more things ensue and they get lost uh, because he wants his owner to be happy. And sl- slowly throughout the movie, he learns that he needs to be happy too. And it's a silly movie. You explain the plot to someone. It's a little silly. You can say that about any Toy Story movie though. And this, and I, Toy Story 3, one of my favorite movies, of one of my favorite animated movies of all time. Mm-hmm. And this movie just built off of it. It built off the world. It made me like the characters even more. It's not a, it's not a Toy Story, it's not for everyone, like all the characters. Like Buzz is kind of in it. Um, Jessie's not, Jessie's not in it at all, it feels like. And she yeah. feels like one of the main characters to me. Mm-hmm. It is Woody's story. But I think as Woody's story, it does a great job at wrapping up the Toy Story franchise and making it feel like all these characters are where they're supposed to be now. It's a it's a needed epilogue. Yes. that's When I started thinking of this movie as an epilogue, I liked it so much more. Mm-hmm. And I guess I always kind of felt that way. Like, it's not necessary. 
but it feels complete now. Yeah. Even more complete. Not to say it didn't feel complete after Toy Story 3. That's why I was scared for this movie. But now it just feels like, oh, I feel relieved. I feel like this is where the story should end. And then they'll make it Toy Story 5 and I'll be like, oh, this shouldn't be made. This is stupid. And I'll love it. Yeah. And then, you know. And also, like, I've been disappointed by Pixar's sequels. Yeah. More recently. I think Incredibles 2 is a good movie. I don't think it's a great movie. I don't think it really needs to exist. Yeah. But it's a good movie. I think um, Finding Dory is completely superficial. Doesn't need to exist. Um, I think this movie is great. Great on its own merits and great on what it builds off of. Definitely. Um, I don't know if I have anything to add. You touched on all the points that I really like about this movie. And Don Rickles has like two lines. Oh, yeah, because he, he's in every movie, but he yeah. passed away, correct? Well, because he was Mr. Potato Head, right? Is that what? He, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think it was Mr. Potato Head. And they, they, like, they made a big deal beforehand where it's like, oh, we pulled a bunch of lines, unused material from other movies, and that's all the character. And everyone was like, whoa, how are they going to do that? And then he had two lines. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, <laughs> those are two, like, accounts. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's Toy Story 4, and that's your number five. So my number five, we're going to talk about later because it appears higher on your list. Um, so okay. we're going to move to your number four, and that's my number six, which is Knives Out. This is a classic whodunit. It is Benoit Blanc, played by Daniel Craig. He is a detective investigating the death of a patriarch, Christopher Plummer, of this eccentric combative family. Uh, we're going to sound like a broken record at this point, but this is another movie we don't want to talk too much about. The cleaner you go into this movie, the better. But there was a tagline for this film that was, remember when movies were fun? And this is the most fun I've had at the movie theaters for a non-franchise movie in a very, very long time. I love this movie. Ryan, you put it even higher than me. So how much did you love Knives Out? I couldn't agree more. I thought, I think our, our enjoyment is of the movie is probably comparable, but you've seen more movies. Fair. Yeah. Um, but I loved it. I thought it was so much fun. Uh, I thought there were so many twists and turns. It took me out. It was like a cl- game of Clue. <laughs> and it, it was the most fun game of Clue I've ever had. Mm-hmm. And like all the characters were super interesting. Yeah. And all the marketing campaign that they did for them beforehand was a lot of fun too. If you went back and saw some of them. I don't know if I have. Oh, that's great. Jamie Lee Curtis has this one ad where she's like in front of this whiteboard and there's a bunch of like stocks going up <laughs> and it's like showing her advertising her brand. It's so much fun. Yeah. Um. Yeah. They just, they had fun. Mm-hmm. They made this movie. They made it to, I mean, Ryan Johnson's really good at building his own world. Yeah. And I, to an extent, Last Jedi, we've talked about this. That is kind of the why I didn't like Last Jedi, but that's why I love this movie. He has complete reign. He can do whatever he wants, and the character Daniel Craig is so much fun. Anna Diarmas does a fantastic job. Um, Chris Evans is a lot of fun. Jamie Lee Curtis is amazing in everything that she's in. If we can just, I love seeing Chris Evans as the dick he was always in movies because he's most known for Captain America where he's very honorable and kind and in real life he's pretty honorable and kind but he got to start in movies playing like the asshole and him and scott pilgrim where he's the skater bro is so funny and to see him kind of return to that was just 
an absolute joy to watch. He has so much fun doing it. <laughs> I mean, even in Scott Pilgrim, when it's not one of the funniest lines, but he he sells it where he's like, he's like in, at the beginning where he throws Scott up against the wall. He's like to Ramona, sup, how you doing? He seems nice. <laughs> and then just walks away. <laughs> he's so good. And in this movie where he goes around his family and he's like, eat shit, eat shit. <laughs> definitely eat shit it's just like oh to see captain america do that was so like cathartic i loved it i know i don't know if i'll ever be able to see him as not captain america yeah or the second x and what's his name <laughs> lucas lee lucas lee yeah. yeah i don't know but if i'll ever see him as not captain america but when i do i'm so delighted mm-hmm. he just like he's not i mean in this movie he shows up like halfway through but he kind of steals it he does yeah and also Daniel Craig with a southern accent was very bizarre, but I got used to it eventually. Oh, I loved Every, it. Everyone does a fantastic job in this mm-hmm. movie. Tony Collette plays like a Gwyneth Paltrow character, and she's promoting this skincare regimen, but that's really a lifestyle, she says. Oh, flam. yeah, that's right. And I love her so much, and she is so fun in this movie. I felt like this was, I mean, I haven't seen Looper, but this was like Ryan Johnson just like gang free reign. And getting all of the best actors to work on his movie mm-hmm. and like just making the most fun movie he and everyone he was working with possibly could. And like, I don't, to be honest, I didn't, There, I have very little emotional attachment to like any of the characters in this movie. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to see what was going to, I really like Anna Diarmas. I find all these characters fascinating. Yeah. I find them fun to watch. I find they're like pieces in a board game yeah and they just you they move around and they do different they they all want their own goal they they all want to win (laughs) and that's what made this so great to me not to say that that's i think that's what the movie was going for i'm not saying like oh i needed this heartfelt connection Mm -hmm. to the characters i'm saying that exactly what this movie was going for it succeeded in spades Mm mm-hmm it's a classic whodunit with a great ensemble cast that makes the subversions, the genre subversions that Ryan Johnson is now known for. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to see more with this cast of characters in this world. I don't know if I do, but like just just right now, I'm like, I if there was a TV show about these people, mm-hmm. I would watch it. Take a Benoit Blanc, take Lakeith Stanfield, and then put them in a new family of like cast of characters yes absolutely i would love that uh benwell block uh cinematic universe if you will yes benwell block cinematic universe awesome so that's knives out ryan's number four my number six i also think daniel craig had a ton of fun not being james bond mm-hmm. i think you can tell and he still got the suit and he still like kind of looks like james bond yeah but like just being a buffoon being yeah. this like goofy detective who's like super smart but also like Throughout most of the movie, he seems kind of dumb and, like, not really know what he's doing. Mm-hmm. It was just a great duality. He's similar to Brad Pitt where he's like, maybe this character wasn't meant to play the leading man and was meant to play, like, a character. Yeah. Be more of a character actor where he gets to have more fun. Which transitions us to our next movie, which is Ryan's number three and my number four. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, directed by Quentin Tarantino. That is correct. Ryan, tell us about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is about the neighbors of Sharon Tate. Yeah. (laughs) During the uh, Manson murders. Well, not during, right before the Manson murders. Mm -hmm. But uh, to be more specific, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio plays this kind of washed up actor in Hollywood. And his, he 
works he's very good friends with and almost to to an extent lives with <laughs> like his stunt driver and uh, or his stunt double sorry and he just wants to get back into his glory days and throughout the whole movie there is this undertone of like they live next to sharon tate and Charles, they see charles manson sometimes yeah and like what is going on in hollywood right now i think that's what the movie on a broader level is about it's about what if what made the golden age of hollywood end and what if it never ended yeah that's what and i think you know quentin tarantino was is friends with roman polanski don't want to get into that right now yeah but or or at least greatly admires the man i don't i can't speak of his relationship with him but i think this is an event that has both shrouded quentin tarantino's career and also all of filmmaking this and all the music industry too since he was friends with um he was obsessed with the beatles and he was friends with a member of the beach boys it was just what what led to this what did we do as a society and as an industry to allow for someone like Charles Manson to worm his way in mm-hmm. and what happened if he didn't. Yeah. And I think that's what I really came to like about this movie. I read a lot about the Manson murders beforehand. They're oh, okay. fascinating. Mm-hmm. They're weird. They're of course they're very sad and very tragic, mm-hmm. but like he believed that the white album was like a premonition and that there would be like a race war yeah. and he w- and then, and his goal was for his family, the Manson family to be on top he was just crazy mm-hmm. um but yeah I, if you want to talk about what you felt how you felt yeah so i totally agree in terms of this isn't my favorite tarantino revisionist history movie so i would document that as like django unchained and glorious bastards once upon a time in hollywood where he kind of rewrites um actual historical events but this is my favorite movie in the way that it does it mm-hmm. i found the ending of this movie uh, it sounds horrible to say, but cathartic. It's not to give things away. It's a violent explosion, as you might express from expect from Quentin Tarantino. But it's also more subdued than Tarantino has been in a long time. It is. It's a slow movie. It's very slow. He lets his characters just kind of talk and exist and um, act in a meta way. Like Leonardo DiCaprio's character is an actor, and mm-hmm. Brad Pitt's his stunt double, and Margot Robbie. Um, a lot of people have complained about her not having the level of the lines she deserves, but in my opinion, Tarantino gives a levity to Sharon Tate's character. Like you, she's truly kind in a way none of the other characters are. She just kind of floats along on screen and kind of captures how she impacted Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And instead of having margot robbie do some dramatic impersonation of her margot robbie goes to the theater and watches the real sharon tate in a movie and i think that's a really interesting creative choice and one that i enjoyed very much she is a joy to watch she's just like she's not in your face no the movie doesn't do too much to go out of its way to be like oh this is the manson murders it's just like these are these people living their lives this is what hollywood was like and yeah it's it's overblown and maybe they seem a little like spoiled or like immature, but that's just what it was like. Mm-hmm. And these people were genuinely good people who just got lucky and they got to live their fantasy life and it ended very tragically. Mm-hmm. And 
what what does that mean? How does that reflect on the industry as a whole? And I would argue it had a big effect on the industry. Definitely. Even if Sharon Tate wasn't the biggest actress at the time. And uh, although Roman Polanski was a very good big director, yeah. it was just like the world came crashing down on them. Mm-hmm. And I, I do... Is this movie is also a lot of fun. It is, yeah. It's fun outside of that context. It's fun watching these characters. And I genuinely like these characters a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, I like Leonardo DiCaprio. I like Brad Pitt. There are points in the movies where maybe you the movie doesn't want you to like Brad Pitt, yeah. but you end up liking Brad Pitt anyways. Mm-hmm. Which so. I think is Tarantino trying to say something about, like, masculinity and us looking up to these characters like they looked up to them in Hollywood. Oh, yeah, definitely. But, um... Yeah, much like uh, The Irishman, it's kind of Tarantino being more reflective in his older age. And it's something I really appreciate mm-hmm. from directors I love. And then who was the who was the martial art? Oh, uh, Bruce Lee. Yeah, the way they the way they treat Bruce Lee is funny. Like, yeah. he's like a pompous dick. Yeah, people have been angry about that, but he was like a total asshole in real life. Yeah, I don't know what people expected. Yeah, yeah I don't know. Like, maybe... I guess we shouldn't get into spoilers with how that scene goes down. But no, we shouldn't. In my opinion, it seems accurate to how I've heard Bruce Lee really was. <laughs> um, it's fun to float in, to take these characters you like, Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio, and just have them float around Hollywood. Yeah. The see time. these celebrities, see these people, see these who had a grand impact, an indescribable impact. Let them go on the Manson Ranch. Why not? You know, what? what was it like? And I think that's what this movie aims to capture an answer in a way. Mm-hmm. What was it like to be a star during this time? Yeah. And in a way that I don't think any other movie has achieved in the same way mm-hmm. where it's like, these people are human and it's not like they're being crowded by paparazzi. It's not like the fame is the reason that we're watching them. Mm-hmm. It's just they're in Hollywood during this very important time during Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And I, that's what I that's what I loved about it. Great entry from Tarantino. Sad to hear that he only has one more. Apparently, but... he keeps saying he might do miniseries. Really that would cool. be awesome because like, he has the he has the uh, Netflix uh, Hateful Eight series that what? he did. Well, he it's the extended cut of Hateful oh, Eight, well, but yeah. it's cut into hour long chapters. Mm-hmm. I, I could see him doing a miniseries that's like four or five episodes long yeah. on Netflix. It wouldn't shock me. That'd be great to see for him. Cool. So with that, we're moving into, or we're continuing number threes, because that was your number three and my number four. My number three is El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie. This follows fugitive Jesse Pinkman as, oh, shit. I'm now realizing you have not seen Breaking Bad. I have not. So I cannot talk about the fact that this is an epilogue to Breaking Bad. I can plug my ears. <laughs> um, I'm going to talk about this movie without spoiling it this is an epilogue to breaking bad following some of the characters that we came to love over the series of breaking bad i will admit is this so high up in my list because i love breaking bad yes (laughs) does this movie stand on its own i would argue it does it much like toy story 4 it is an epilogue you do not need to watch this you can assume how these characters kind of resolve themselves or maybe come to an end or what happens to these characters but it's much more satisfying the way Vince Gilligan has to do it it was so great 
to return to the Breaking Bad world where, oh, okay, person has a task. Let's do that task. And we're going to spend 10 minutes doing a montage, searching a house or doing something. And right when they get what they want, you think, what can happen that will make this character's life most difficult as possible? And I think that's a really interesting theory of screenwriting is taking your characters and thinking, how can we make their life even more difficult? And when everything possibly, when everything that goes wrong can go wrong, it feels even more satisfying when characters are able to triumph over it. And it feels deserved when those circumstances take our characters down. And I loved this movie. It's not the most exciting thing you're ever going to watch, but anyone who's a Breaking Bad fan should definitely watch this. It's on Netflix now. I love the Black Keys album. I think it's El very Camino. good. Yeah, I think it's very good. It's Lonely Boy, Little Black Submarines. Mm-hmm. Um, genuinely, I have liked what I've seen at Breaking Bad, mm-hmm. which is not all of it. Mm-hmm. I sadly stopped around at the fly, funnily enough. Um, I really, I think it's some of the most engaging TV I've ever seen. Uh, I think the reason it was hard for me to watch is each episode felt like a movie. It felt like dense and an hour which is great for television like once a week but it felt dense it felt like the characters were not at the same place they were at the beginning of the episode and that was every episode Mm -hmm. so that was something that was hard to adjust to considering i have a very hard time watching tv shows yeah like it was hard to the reason i got through uh game of thrones was i'd put it on on my ps4 and then i'd just be too lazy to get up and grab the controller and turn it off. So I just sit there and absorb the next episode. <laughs> but maybe I'll do that for Breaking Bad. But it's hard to go back to a show when the hype's gone. Yeah. So. 100%. And speaking of the hype, I feel like I obviously think this movie's great. It's in my top three of the year. Uh, I feel like it really just came and went culturally. I don't see it on a lot of top tens this year. I don't see a lot of people talking about it in terms of Oscar consideration. I wonder if a part of that is maybe the epilogue nature of it where it's like it didn't dramatically change anything about breaking bad which i'm glad it didn't that probably could have ended poorly um it's just another standout performance from vince gilligan from aaron paul from the characters and creators that we know from breaking bad i also think sometimes it could be hard to justify like putting a movie like el camino on top 10 list because it's dependent on breaking bad to an extent true yeah like at least with Marvel, you can say that they're all movies. Like, this is cross-medium, mm-hmm. which is awesome. It's great. Great for bringing bad fans. Yeah. But it's also hard to justify film critic being like, this is on the same level as Parasite or Lighthouse or yeah, whatever. what have you. Yeah. Well, it's not hard for me to justify it because El Camino is a fantastic movie that you can watch now on Netflix. And I highly recommend you do, especially if you are a diehard Breaking Bad fan as... I am myself. Did you think about putting Breaking Bad as your best of the decade since it didn't start in the decade? Or Yeah, so I, good question. I struggle with that a little bit because it ended this decade, but it didn't start this decade. Yeah. So I, even on a personal level, I feel like To Mip a Butterfly, I believe is more important to me and to culture, but I don't think I would have ruled it out if someone else picked Breaking Bad just because it started before the decade. Especially after seeing how Game of Thrones ended, it's probably the best show that was in any way involved in the 2010s. <laughs> May I ask if it's your favorite like piece of medium 
ever favorite tv show movie oh damn um no i probably wouldn't go that far it's without it it's easily my favorite tv show i could probably count the amount of movies or albums i like more than it on one or two hands but i don't think breaking bad takes the number one spot okay just wanted to ask if i said yes would have gotten you to watch it i'll probably try and watch it anyways (laughs) i really do i really do want to Mm -hmm. it'll be hard to do it in college it will be but on that note we're gonna hop to ryan's number two we're down to two your number two is actually my number five so that's exciting ryan what is your second favorite film of 2019? My second favorite film of 2019, Clayton, <laughs> <laughs> is A Marriage Story, starring Adam Driver, Scarlett Johansson, directed by... Noah Baumbach? Noah Baumbach. Uh, I've only seen Francis Ha, so I blank on the name. Mm-hmm. But I loved this movie thoroughly. I thought it was... I love movies where you just kind of get dropped into this person's life, and it's not the start, and it's not the end. It's just a chapter in their life mm-hmm. and you know call me by your name feels like that uh i think the best example is manchester by the sea where the movie doesn't really yeah. start it doesn't really end um it just happens yeah that's what this movie is kind of like if a little more structured in the sense of like you have a clear events the entire movie's based around this couple's divorce and it was just a heartbreaking fantastic movie mm-hmm. it was emotionally poignant it was honest it didn't hold back any punches and you both liked and didn't like the characters at times they felt human they felt like they made mistakes and sometimes they could be dicks and sometimes you could side with them but that is the thing that i think made this movie such an interesting watch is i just felt for them and I, I, in a way that I hadn't felt for another two characters in a movie all year, I don't think. I just I just wanted things to work out for them. And it felt real. It felt like this happened. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think Noah Baumbach, that's a testament to Noah Baumbach's like, screenwriting skills. But much like Jojo Rabbit, this film is just overflowing with empathy. It has so much empathy for its two main characters. And... I don't think either of them are bad people. They're both probably good people, but it shows that good people can really, really hurt each other sometimes. And a divorce isn't always a single person's fault, you know? Like, the film makes it sound as though Charlie made a lot of the mistakes in the film before, but in the actual movie, Scarlett Johansson's character seems to escalate things. But it never feels like she's a villain or villainized in fact i probably found myself empathizing with her more but that's just a testament to noah bombach's ability to have these two characters in conflict without ever having people without ever feeling like one side is better than the other people keep saying that like oh who's right and who's wrong in this movie and that is such a fundamentally uninteresting way to approach Mm -hmm. this movie in my opinion and that's not what it's about yeah it's really not I think Noah Baum, I think they did such a fantastic job. Scarlett Johansson and Driver, two of the best performances all year. I hope they're both nominated. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. But Noah Baumbach brings the best out of his actors. Mm-hmm. And I feel that in his previous works, and I feel that here, I think that he 
knows exactly what he wants mm-hmm. out of his actors and he knows how to get it out of them Definitely. in a way that isn't like kubrick where he tortures them for a few months no so um i've heard that like twitter doesn't like this movie i'm so glad i'm not on twitter but like apparently the big climax fight scene was like meme to death so people don't think it's they think oh, it's yeah. melodramatic now well i'd seen a few of them but i didn't every movie is mean now i, I mm-hmm. didn't i didn't take it for anything mm-hmm. you know i really love this movie um i think similar to call me by your name this might be one that i realized impacted me more when i saw it than um i would first have thought yeah i i, I think this will stick with me yeah definitely i think uh, i almost gave it a five out of five on Letterboxd. i thought about it <laughs> You gotta think about it a little longer before I, got, it gets I do. I do have to think about it a little longer. Yeah. I don't. I. It, it it was perfect in everything it was trying going for, and I know I've said that about a few movies already. Like Knives Out, I think was perfect in everything it was going for. This just also it hit me. It hit yeah. me hard, mm-hmm. to an extent that no other movie has this year, or has in different ways. Mm-hmm. It kind of like gave me a window into divorce that i don't think i would have had before this both like logistically in terms of like how it all works but also like what it can feel like when your child refers to the other parents place as home you know what i mean and how much you can struggle with that but the kid's not in the wrong for thinking that and neither of the parents are in the wrong it's just like divorce fucking sucks yeah and this movie shows that in a way that doesn't vilify any of its characters the the characters have to carry this emotional weight mm-hmm. and it, the movie makes the audience carry it too mm-hmm. and that's so fascinating mm-hmm. i i love that he was able to do that even if it was somewhat exhausting to watch in a way mm-hmm. now you mentioned that this movie did everything perfectly that it set out to do i would say the same thing about my number two pick which is bong joon ho's parasite i'm so sorry but this is going to be the third or fourth time that i say just see this movie i don't want to talk too much about it but just see this movie this is about a rather poor family infiltrating the lives of a rich family one at a time to where they can slowly insert themselves into this wealthy life that they would rather be living and the plot goes bonkers from there it takes turns that you didn't even see as being possible it is one of the most ambitious movies i've seen in a long time it is one of the most exciting movies i've ever seen in a long time and much like joker it has this mentality and knives out honestly eat the rich almost and this feeling we have uniquely right now against the wealthy elites And all this anger felt between social classes. And it captures it in a way that was riveting and doesn't hammer that theme over over your head. And it does it with a levity um, because the movie is funny for a lot of the points. But it's also impactful in a way that not a lot of movies are. And it's shot so beautifully. Um, The production design is amazing. And... Bong Joon-ho takes advantage of that amazing production design, awesome camera movements, and cinematography, and I feel like no compliment I can give can give this movie justice, 
because it is that good. People are raving about it um, for good reason. It is one of the strongest movies of this decade and definitely of this year. I very much want to see this movie. It is not available where we live right now. Yeah. And that's the thing. I really wanted to watch it beforehand. Um, That was what was stopping me. Another movie I think I would love. I very much enjoy Snowpiercer. Yeah. Uh, That movie's a ride. It's crazy. One of the (laughs) weirdest experiences of my life. And I really enjoyed it. Um, I assume it's very different. Oh, it is. Mm-hmm. Although though, that also has like an eat the rich kind of mentality. It does. I'm glad we're getting that theme in movies. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you are. Um, yeah, you mentioned that this movie isn't really available to you. I want to shout out the Little Theater because that's a indie theater in Rochester where I saw three of my top ten movies at. Um, I saw The Farewell, Jojo Rabbit, and Parasite there. It is an amazing theater for anyone living in Rochester. Highly recommend. But... It does kind of suck because it feels like this death of the middle indie movie, the middle budget indie movie, means that some of the best movies of the year, which we are still getting, even with the death of that, are smaller budget and are only going to go to some theaters. And Parasite was unfortunately one of those. It wasn't at major theaters for very long, but once it goes to DVD or digital or Blu-ray, or if it gets re-released because it is almost definitely going to have a Best Picture nom, um, I highly recommend you see it. Parasite also has somewhat of a disadvantage compared to something like The Lighthouse because it's foreign. Yeah. Which is a shame. It's a big shame. I would be... I, I really hope it's nominated... Having not seen it, I hope it's nominated for Best Picture because it's rare for foreign movies to be nominated for Best Picture. I mean, Roma was last year. Which Roma was. But I, I, Alfonso Cuaron is still a big name in America. Not to say Bong Joon-ho isn't. He obviously has very successful American movies. Um, but that did have it going for it, you know. Mm-hmm. And they love Gravity. The Oscars love Gravity. So mm-hmm. Awesome. So before we move on to our number one, because you and I have the same number one. We do. I want to talk about two things. First, let's do some honorable mentions. What are some movies that either i saw or you saw or we both saw that didn't end up in either of our top tens but that we still loved i think we both really liked little women yes yeah having not read the book Mm -hmm. it was greta gerwig fantastic director very good with actors and um it was just pleasant it was so delightful yeah (laughs) there's a monologue from the movie where it talks about like women being viewed like holistically like joe the character really rejects ever being with a man because then she feels like she's playing into this archetype. Um, and she talks about like, I have ambitions and I have a mind and I have all this as well as a heart. Like I can do more than just love, but God, I'm so lonely. (laughs) And I just keep thinking about that monologue a lot and how telling that is for today. And that's a testament both to Greta Gerwig's writing because it's a testament to both the original little women book and how it still works in a contemporary setting but also to Greta Gerwig because she added the I'm so lonely part of that monologue and I feel like that's a really important part for both Joe's character and for us today that's what I was shocked by in this movie is how human the characters felt Mm -hmm. they talk like people you know often in these period pieces they can get kind of bogged down Mm -hmm. by the period that they live in whereas here it adds to the movie Mm -hmm. and like they feel like they're alive and they're breathing and they're interesting. And I want to see what happens to them. And 
that's rare for movies that are placed so far back. Yeah. And I don't know why exactly, but I don't know. The favorites, the best, even that's kind of satirical, but is a good, like, not comparison, example of a period piece done right Mm -hmm. in a completely different style. Yeah. And I finally learning how to do these types of movies right. Yeah, definitely. Which is funny because I just saw in last year, I saw Pride and Prejudice in a class, in a literature class. And I think most people can say good things about the movie. I thought it was so boring. Yeah. I thought it was drab. And I think there's something about the time period and the aesthetic that makes it easy for it to seem drab. Yeah. And this movie does a good job of having heart in the middle mm-hmm. of it. And the, all of the colonial type architecture and the Civil War era, it adds to it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't subtract from it. Definitely. Um, Booksmart. That was a movie we both saw and mm-hmm. liked quite a bit. Um, I'm looking, it looks like it's your number 11. It is. It's very funny. Mm-hmm. Very funny. Very fun. One of the better depictions of high school I've seen in film. Yeah. Because it's like not in your face. There are no popular kids or like, there's just like, oh, this person's kind of annoying and this person's kind of hot. <laughs> you know, that's what <laughs> yeah. high school is. Yeah. There are people, there are two, I don't want to name names. There are two people in this movie. The, the, like, I don't remember their names, but like. The one like princess woman who's yeah. like treated whose family super rich, and then her friend, that are exactly like two people I knew from high school. <laughs> oh my god, that's amazing! Yeah, it was scary. Doesn't she have one line where it's like, "I had sex in a field, but it wasn't a field; it was a cemetery, and now the dead souls on my eggs or something." <laughs> she did say that. It's a really funny movie. It is so funny. It's very strange. For again, I I think the moments I liked in it. There is one part where the main character views like the person she has a crush on and the entire room just stops and then they like they do a dance and they run through it's yeah. like La La Land. It is. Those were the move those were the parts of the movie that I like that's funny. Mm-hmm. That's great. I haven't seen that in a high school movie. Mm-hmm. The robot chicken skit was weird, but everything else was very <laughs> I thought good. That was funny. It was pretty funny. Um we talked about us. Anything else you'd like to say about us? Uh, no, I think, I think I got, I think what I said was right. It's a really enjoyable movie that had a lot of ideas and didn't have time to flesh out. Mm -hmm. At least one of them to a degree that get out is fleshed out. Mm -hmm. And on the same genre, horror, um, this was the biggest surprise for me this year. Uh, Dr. Sleep. I cannot stop talking about Dr. Sleep. This is the sequel to The Shining. Um, which you may think doesn't need to exist, but there's a book called Dr. Sleep. So Stephen King wrote a sequel to The Shining. And this is directed by Mike Flanagan, who did Haunting of Hill House. And the movie towards the end is a little reliant on your love for The Shining. But when it's doing its own thing, Dr. Sleep, pun intended, shines. It is so good. Um, It describes... Even though it's not a Star Wars movie, it describes the Force in a way I like more than almost any other Star Wars movie. I think Last Jedi did it pretty well. But the characters are, like, so fascinating, and they skip any of the boring stuff that would be in other movies of, like, trying to convince a character that, like, oh, you have this shining power. Like, it just jumps into it. It jumps into the things you want to see. There are sequences from this that are, like, shot so well and are so unique and kind of slow paced in a way that 
in a different way than The Shining, but similar to The Shining in terms of like taking its time with the pace. Um, it's not a very action movie, but when it chooses to rely on action and gore, uh, it's really quite riveting, I find. I was just, I kept looking to Ted, uh, my partner who I saw the movie with, and I kept being like, this is great. This is so good. I'm so happy we saw this. Um, I highly, highly recommend Dr. Sleep to anyone who likes The Shining. I have not seen it, but being a huge fan of The Shining and a huge fan of Stanley Kubrick's work, I'm glad it takes a different direction than what The Shining, I'm sure the book does too, but like The Shining is the thing that is least fleshed upon in The Shining. It just is kind of there. Yeah. And it kind of explains why Danny like write, writes Red Rum on the thing. And mm-hmm. that's all it really does is it, it adds to the atmosphere. But I'm glad that that's the part being fleshed out. Whereas you can just kind of leave um, Jack's story alone. Mm-hmm. At least to a certain extent. I can't speak for the last third of the movie. but Yeah. Um, it, it does seem like it leaves The Shining on its own. It's another movie that this year that seems like an epilogue, but a one I really enjoyed. That's good. Shall we talk about... Disappointments? Oh, uh, let's do that after our number one. Let's stay okay. on the positive track. Okay. Ryan, our number one film was Star Wars, The Last Jedi. That... We made huh? this joke last year, so oh, I thought it would be oh, funny oh, to make oh, it again. I forgot about it, that. It seems like you don't think uh, of this. I forget. Well, I was going to do the bit. I was going to, my bit was going to be, I was super confused at what you were saying. But... Oh, oh, so you were yes-anding me? What? What? Yes. <laughs> Our number one film is Avengers Endgame. Ryan, why is it your number one film? I mentioned this in the last podcast. I cried. I peed. <laughs> <laughs> it was so much fun. It was the perfect ending to... A trail uh, to a friend, not trilogy, a franchise that has been ever present in my life since I've loved movies. I cannot rec- recommend is a rough word because it's the highest grossing movie of all time now, right? <laughs> yeah. I, it is so much fun. It was the perfect ending to this franchise that is honestly long overdue for an ending. It's been happening for so long. Yeah. And it, it, it doesn't miss a beat. It makes, I'm so happy to see all these characters I love together one more time and to see them find the, to see the writers find an ending that where every single person who watches this movie is happy mm-hmm. with how it ended. This year proved to us that conclusions are difficult. Yeah. We talked about this extensively with Game of Thrones. Um, I also think in my opinion, Star Wars concluded very poorly. Maybe we'll talk about that a little later. This film concludes this huge franchise just perfectly, like you're saying. Every character has a satisfying ending, and people theorized for an entire year about where this movie was going to go. And people probably landed certain elements, but I don't know if they predicted the endings that we got for Captain America, that we got for Iron Man, that we got for whoever. And each character had its their own perfect ending. Even to a greater extent, this ending has been a decade in the making. Yeah. It's been, and they, I wouldn't be shocked if Kevin Feige didn't know how it would end when yeah. he made Iron Man. Well, when his team made Iron Man. Mm-hmm. John Favreau definitely didn't. They didn't have writers. <laughs> yeah. Um, I th- there's an anecdote where I think John Favreau said, like, he either said to Kevin Feige or Robert Downey Jr., like, 
it, I really enjoyed working with you this for this project. And I think it was Robert Downey Jr. He responded like, well, if we did this right, we're going to be working together for the next 12 years. And they do, For right? the next 20 movies. Yeah, and they did. Um, Even the movies that people look down upon in the MCU now in retrospect, they still built to this moment. They yeah. still felt like a train that couldn't be stopped, which it, at some of the worst or worst moments of Star Wars The Game of Thrones didn't feel like that. Mm-hmm. And so that that's something I admire. Iron Man 2 does not kill the franchise. Captain, America, Captain Marvel does not kill the franchise. Okay. But it just keeps it... It just kept the same tone, the same energy, the same uh, love for making these movies mm-hmm. throughout the entire... Through every movie. And yeah, maybe I didn't like Ant-Man and the Wasp. I'll say it. But that doesn't make this movie's ending any less impactful. No. It, it, it just... It knows where to place its chips mm-hmm. and it does it so flawlessly and the movie at on its own is very strong you know what i mean like mm-hmm. the plot of time travel and then um spoilers for avengers endgame follow but i assume everyone on planet earth has seen this movie at least twice now yeah. um so we're going to talk about spoilers for a little bit just the ending fight is so satisfying and from the moment cap grabs thor's hammer to the ending dance i spent crying and it's not only because i've spent the last fucking 11 years of my life watching these movies it's because of the people i watched them with it's because of the internet communities that we theorized with it's because of the kids on halloween dressing up with them they had so much they had so much pressure to deliver and make the biggest franchise of this century satisfying and they hit the nail on the head in a way that was satisfying as a singular movie and as a way that was satisfying to this giant franchise growing up there were two universal truths everyone played smash brothers (laughs) and everyone loved marvel yeah. Those were the only two things I could guarantee everyone in my age group did. Mm-hmm. And it was just when he grabbed the hammer again, just got to talk about this all the time. I yelled. Yeah. I clapped. I stood up from my chair. Yeah. I was blown away mm-hmm. by this movie. I was so happy that they stuck the landing. Mm-hmm. And I was happy it was this one that stuck the landing. Me too. In retrospect, if I had to pick one, I would have picked this one. Yeah. Because there was so much riding on it. Mm-hmm. Because there was so... I, I had grown up with these characters. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'd grown up with Star Wars, but not in the same way. And like, I didn't really grow up with Game of Thrones. That was far after I was done the formative years of growing up. Yeah. But it felt... Um, I just wanted to see these characters concluded and happy and like at the place where they needed to be and if they weren't you know spider-man again another movie yeah so i wasn't too concerned but the core avengers that's what i was worried about mm-hmm. and that's what i think was the best part of this movie just captain america iron man obviously Robert Downey jr and chris evans fantastic job scarlett johansson this is kind of for a good chunk of it her movie yeah in parts yeah hulk's funny 
Mm-hmm. I think that he had his moment in like Age of Ultron. And then since then, he's been kind of a joke character, mm-hmm. but in a very good, very funny way. Mm-hmm. In Thor Ragnarok, he's hilarious. One of the best parts of that movie is just Hulk. <laughs> but um, Yeah, I don't know what more I can say that hasn't been said in its own podcast that it got or what we said now. But mm-hmm. We were I... comparing it to a significantly worse ending. Yeah, I wasn't anticipating that when we planned that out. No. Um, I will say, I hope Robert Downey Jr. is still in consideration for an Oscar nomination because his character arc is one of the best ones of cinema, period. Like, yeah, it was told over nine movies, but it is amazing. The character was, like, almost entirely improv, the first movie. Yeah, they really. didn't. It was during the writer's strike. Mm-hmm. They didn't. That movie, compared to, like, Dark of the Moon, which was also <laughs> made during the writer's strike, yeah. you can tell... They didn't have writers. No one was writing these movies. It is a miracle that that movie is good and could launch this franchise. Yeah. There is no reason it should have. It has no right to have. But it was just, it's a fun movie and it was a perfect base to build this franchise on. Absolutely. And it also had the advantage of the time where it's like, who really cared about Iron Man before Iron Man came yeah, out? Yeah, true. Or Captain America. Yeah, people loved Marvel comics. I'm sure I would have been at least somewhat familiar with the character had I grown up uh, had the movies not existed and i'm the age i am now but this kind of yeah why not Mm -hmm. you know yeah we can try it Mm -hmm. you know people only the only marvel character was spider-man yeah and and dc's characters were way more famous so Mm -hmm. it was like we can we can see how it goes there wasn't much of a loss that could have happened if they didn't try this Mm -hmm. i think that's why it was partly a lightning in a bottle i mean certainly the movies are safe i'm not gonna say they're experimental in in any way but they were just like we'll make we'll we'll try it Mm -hmm. and that was i have so much respect for kevin feige for being like yeah let's try this and everyone else involved so we talked about some of our favorites um avengers endgame being number one uh just real quickly uh, i don't necessarily want to go into like worst of the year i don't think we can learn a lot from that but did you have any that you were a little disappointed by Star Wars. Yeah, same. <laughs> ah. I think that's what this segment was made for. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, okay. We don't need to hide that we're huge Star Wars fans. Mm-hmm. We've talked about it on this podcast. We talk about it with everyone in our lives. Mm-hmm. And I saw went to Galaxy's Edge this summer, and it was amazing. And I had blue milk, and it got like denser as it went on and it made like a brick in my body and it wasn't very good. I think <laughs> I think it was cough medicine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But it was just I was sitting in the cantina drinking bantha milk. I was like, I'm going to cry. This is amazing. Yeah. I do not envy anyone who had to make this film. I don't envy J.J. Abrams. I don't envy Kathleen Kennedy, uh, who executive produced the best Indiana Jones movie, Temple of Doom. I love her. <laughs> and then I and I don't envy uh, Ryan Johnson. It was just poor management and a bad situation for everyone. Yeah. And most especially the fans. Yeah. And probably the actors, too. They didn't seem too happy because they were probably fans. Probably. I don't want to shit on this movie too much because I know a lot of people do enjoy it. I personally was not a fan, and the biggest reason for that is it goes back on just too much from Last Jedi, which we joke about often on this podcast, but that movie means a lot to me. And just thinking about it is making me tear up. Um, it's themes of anyone can do this. You are a no one. 
so therefore you are special in your own right um just means so much to me yeah the movie really does shit on that it it shits on it so bad um i'm not crazy about last jedi that's an aspect of it i really appreciated mm -hmm. and it's a shame that this movie didn't feel like a sequel to the movie that came before it which is what it should have been even if people don't like it they're hopefully maybe the people that don't like it are a majority but the people that were so vocal about it are a minority so you can't try and please everyone because then you end up creating a very large but very thin shell that will break mm -hmm. at first sight of criticism uh i think another movie that was disappointing for both of us was it chapter yes. two yeah at best i thought it was fun mm -hmm. at worst i thought it was dumb yeah and uh I can't, you know, the actors did a good job, I think. They were all great actors. Um, I'm not familiar with the director's work. Do you know? I'm not sure, no. Okay. Um, but just the writing wasn't very good, and the plot wasn't very interesting. And maybe that is partly because of the source material. Stephen King was most definitely on coke <laughs> when he uh, wrote the book. But that's a shame. It's a shame, because I genuinely enjoyed the first It. I thought it was a lot of fun, and I didn't think it was rejuvenating horror, but I thought that it captured the same spirit in a same in, in a weird way that movies like The Body, or like Goonies did, but just in horror in a more horror way. Just this group of kids going out in this town having adventures, and the adventures may lead to them dying. Yeah, <laughs> in horrible, dread, terrible ways. Um, I don't want to sound like a broken record, so I won't go too much into it, but the way this movie treats homosexual characters is disturbing. It's disgusting. At best, frustrating, and at worst, disturbing. Um, the, so that was the biggest sentiment I had towards disliking this movie, but in terms of just the screenwriting and the conclusion, I thought it was pretty rough. The opening scene is worthless. It is, yeah. Absolutely worthless. Uh, uh, Ethan left the theater to look for a jacket that he lost and <laughs> yeah. then came back after the opening scene and I think he likes the movie more than probably. both of us because yeah. of that. And I was probably more lenient towards the movie just because I w wanted to have fun. Mm -hmm. And it, it, if you turn your brain off, I hate when people say that because I don't think movies should be good on a non-intellectual level. I mean, it can just be fun and not offer any sort of meaning. But that... I still want my brain to be active during the movie. Yeah. I will say if you turn your brain off or if you're doing laundry or something and this movie's kind of in the background and you just catch glimpses here and there, it's probably fun. Yeah. It's probably fine. Mm -hmm. But as a continuation to a movie that wasn't amazing but was good and thoroughly enjoyable, I was disappointed. Real quick for me, uh, Ford v. Ferrari. Uh, I saw it because it's going to be an Oscar contender. And I really was not crazy about it. Um, I don't entirely see what other people see in it, but I thought it was pretty by the numbers, pretty bland. Um, so that's just one of the movies that's being talked about this year. Also at TIFF <laughs> yeah. that I did happen to see, but was not a fan of and thus has not been mentioned. If I may say one more, um, and I won't talk about it too much. I think The Lion King is, I won't say it's a bad movie. <laughs> Because it's hard to call The Lion King a bad movie. <laughs> but the remake was worthless. Yeah, It did not add anything. It did not make the movie, the original, better. It had no right to exist on its own. It is just The Lion King again. 
and you're going to pay for it because you're Disney. You love Disney. And what's the point? Yeah. But if you can, why, why make this movie? You can make so many other movies. Why make this movie? I'm hoping that they learn their lesson because the new Mulan looks awesome and different. Yeah. But yeah, I never saw this movie because it ended up just seeming too derivative. I just saw the original again. <laughs> I yeah, just rewatched it. That's fair. But they add like one scene. They they add stuff to make the female characters seem more active in the plot, which I thought they were active in the plot enough in the original. Yeah, they are. Nala's yeah. the one that gets Simba to come back. Yeah, I it just you know, I don't like Disney progressivizing. It's progressive eyeing. It's past yeah does that make sense like Like, revisionist history in a way that makes them look better yes exactly and like i like what warner brothers did where they release these old shorts that are racist and are bad but they say this was a different time we would never make this again yeah but we have we feel obligated to release these because it is our art Mm -hmm. even if we do not stand by this art anymore disney would never release song of the south I don't entirely blame them for not releasing Song of the South. I can see where they're coming from. But I don't see where they're coming from when they add another musical number for Jasmine to make her seem more active in the plot. And they just water down all the characters. But hey, she has an extra song. I don't know what it does. I don't know what message you're trying to send. It doesn't make the original better. It just makes your brand more diluted. Definitely. I think that's really well put. Um, let's make this section quick because we're running a little long, but, um, what are some non-movie things you love from this year? Um, favorite album of the year, I think we can say for both of us, is Tyler Crater's Igor. Absolutely. Absolutely amazing. Just only 39 minutes. Every song is perfect. <laughs> it's pretty much, yeah. It's, it is the, is the best album of the year. Mm-hmm. Probably one of my favorite albums of the decade. Yeah. I, I love the, how rough the mixing was intentionally. I love how vulnerable Tyler has become mm-hmm. in his songs. I love the music videos. I love the branding. I think he is one of the most fascinating people to become famous. Mm-hmm. And I think he's a voice we need. Mm-hmm. I also think it's good to listen to a rap slash R&B album that isn't about social or political issues. Not to say that I, lo- I love Kendrick Lamar, Beyonce, mm-hmm. Kanye West. I find all of them very fascinating. I love their work. Tyler just made an album about his personal strife. Yeah. And about a concept album about his love for someone else. Mm-hmm. And a genre where that doesn't happen very often. Like I can think of 808s and Heartbreaks. Um, where an artist really goes in depth. And maybe Yay. Where an artist goes really in depth about their life and their personal strife in the genre. That is kind of founded on political... And social leanings again not a bad thing tipping butterflies one of my favorite albums of all time but i'm just glad that it exists in the same way that i'm glad that black panther can be a movie starring black people made by black people that isn't about being black yeah like that's truly progressive is when it's like first step is like being in movies and then second step is like you're in movies and we're not talking about it you know yeah like it's just representation but we still need like we still need to talk about it yeah we just don't need to talk about it all the time yeah the art doesn't like tyler doesn't want to do that clearly Mm -hmm. he has before and sometimes he does here 
but he doesn't need to. Mm -hmm. He doesn't feel like he needs to, Mm -hmm. which I think is an important step for us appreciating the genre and for artists making music within that genre. Mm -hmm. I also love the cyclical nature of it, and I think it's really accurate of it starting like, man, I really love you. You make my earthquake. You're my everything. And then like, oh, you don't love me back? Oh, okay, well, we can get you to love me back. And then it's like, oh, you don't love me back? Well, I'm going to fucking come and kill you. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's like, you have all this power over me. I don't I don't like it. I'm done. I'm done with you forever. And then, but can we be friends? And then you assume the answer to that question is yes. And then the note, the last note, is only resolved if you start the album again. Because mm-hmm. he falls right back in love once he gets, once he becomes friends with this person again. And I think that cyclical nature is really telling and something we can learn from it's also great because you start when it's already messy yeah which is really cool um i draw a lot of parallels from the this album to twin fantasy because twin fantasy kind of does the same thing beach life and death is messy it does not portray i mean there's a lot of love in their relationship Mm -hmm. but it's not love that's well founded Mm -hmm. it's built on this messy and kind of invasive uh foundation and then you get to watch it you get to watch the highs and the lows although igor has a much there there aren't that many highs yeah and um it's it's this uncompromising like forward like force Mm -hmm. i'm going to have you love me yeah that makes the album so exciting. It's not just a breakup album. It's not just an album about a relationship. It's an album about man who is obsessed. Yeah, obsession. Yeah. Um, real quick, because we are very running very long. You mentioned Car Seat Headrest. Mm-hmm. Commit Yourself Completely. One of the best live albums I've ever heard. I think they're so exciting live. Um, seven members, crazy. Uh, they have, watching their career from even 2016 onward, they have so much confidence in what mm-hmm. they're doing. They integrate their songs so well into the live set in ways that I would have never guessed being mm-hmm. a longtime fan. It's uh, it's exciting. I'm very excited to see where they go from here, especially the two new tracks that they played live are amazing when we went and saw them live. Yeah. Crazy good. Uh, Can't Cool Me Down is an impeccable track. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, just listen to it. Definitely. Especially I'll- if you're a Carsey fan. Yeah, for sure. I would also recommend Ginger by Brockhampton. That's probably my second favorite album of the year. Ryan, you mentioned Anima by Tom York from Radiohead fame. Uh, yeah, Anima, Anima is... Tom York's solo career is very fascinating. He is a lot more electronic than he is in Radiohead. And it's just fun. It's just mm-hmm. fun to follow a musician in the way that I followed Tom York. Yeah, much like how we talked about Martin Scorsese too. Having oh, that yeah. long breath of work and seeing that evolve. There's one song on here that destroys me called don chorus where it's very much about his career and his life he says if you could do it all again he he keeps repeating that like oh and what, he doesn't answer it yeah what if you could do it all again Damn. without a second thought mm-hmm. and i think that's that's the perfect way to describe this second leg of their career mm-hmm. or this third leg even and uh, real quick, because I spent a lot of this year thinking about it, uh, Mr. Robot, we talked about it a little bit last week on the best art of the decade, but this is one of my, this was easily my favorite show that I spent watching this year. Um, I highly recommend it. It's a very interesting character study and 
it says a lot about tech and mental health and the current society we live in. Um, and hopefully there will be more podcasts coming soon about it because we'd like to do a bonus. You have to watch this about it, but we'll see. Ooh. Um, also, Jedi Fallen Order is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I'm playing through it right now. Not even close to finishing it. Don't have a lot to say about it. It's just fun. I'm really enjoying <laughs> it. I don't play a lot of video games, so it's nice to get back into it. Awesome. Well, with that, I think it's time we start wrapping up because we are running long. I should say that our top tens are in the description, as well as links to our letterbox lists that include even more films. So if you follow that, you can see my top 15 films, um, and you can also see Ryan's full ranking of all the movies he saw this year. I like to keep them all there because I like to remember what movie I hated the most in this year's <laughs> Child's Play. Oh, it wasn't very fun. <laughs> Two Mark Hamill disappointments this year. Oh, that's right. Yeah. But um, speaking of things in the description, where can people find your work, Ryan? Oh, my God. Uh, I have a podcast called You Have to Hear This. I run it with my friend, uh, Lucas Cotton. Great. I love him. He's so much fun. Um, it's where we just recommend albums to each other and discuss them. Every Monday at 9 p.m. is when it airs on WCBF Fredonia Radio, 88.9, I believe. And then they usually go up as podcasts after I'm done editing them, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Awesome. And then I also have a short film on my YouTube channel called uh, My Past Follows Me Like Shadows that I did for my film class. And that was crazy experience learning Mm -hmm. how to use cameras and filming my own stuff it was weird Mm -hmm. Uh, i really enjoyed it and then i'm also uh released my first track yeah called uh null and void on bandcamp and soundcloud uh the band's called ivory heights on soundcloud it'll just be ryan terry because i don't know how to link it (laughs) apart from my gmail okay but um i should be linked to my instagram too Mm -hmm. i love um i love the experience of working in a studio it was crazy i was in it for nine hours i was hungry i was sweaty oh my it was gosh exhausting yeah. but in in such an invigorating way and i'm really excited to see what happens next that's awesome uh real quick you can find my stuff also in the description uh i host two other podcasts you have to watch this with ted ryan um and stories we're sharing which is where different people interview different guests and i'm actually doing an interview tomorrow so hopefully there'll be a new Stories Worth Sharing episode up very shortly. But again, you can find all that in the description. Our intro song is Bistro by Mad Villain. Thank you to Anchor for making this podcast possible. Until next time, I'm Clayton Terry. I'm Ryan Terry. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Do you want me to do the Ethan thing? I, th- I think someone has to do the Ethan thing. Uh Oh, uh, Baba Freight will replace Baby Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> Just what I wanted.